Hello, everybody. This is Great Dane Nation, presented by Vegas Insider. I'm your host, Morton Anderson. Man, I had a ton of fun chatting with my old buddy, uh, Trent Green, last week. He's just a top-shelf dude, so fun, so knowledgeable, and has just made such a beautiful transition from on the field to the broadcast booth. And if you haven't heard it yet, you should definitely go check it out on Apple, on Spotify, vegasinsider.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. But this week... We are talking to one of the greatest players in NFL history, a true iconic Steelers player, Hall of Famer, Franco Harris. So very excited for that conversation. Uh, before we get to that, however, let me welcome in my sidekick, Tommy Corporate. Wait a minute. Did I say Tommy Corporate? Tommy Freeze Pops. Uh, you son of a bitch. Mr. Uh, Mr. Corporate, what's going on? And explain to, to the listeners why I'm a little miffed at you at this point. Uh, we were getting along so swimmingly, and uh, all of a sudden, here's a new nickname for you. Listen, man, I go through the podcasts before we put everything together, clean up some ums and extra words, and Morton let the word shit slip during the interview and me trying to protect my job i'm like all right maybe i'll just bleep that out but we hadn't really talked about <laughs> leaving in swear words so i made the call we were talking about trent green let me get some context to it talking about trent green and how young he was when i came to the chiefs no two and he was having conversations with other teammates saying you know when Morton started in 1982, I was still shitting in diapers. And I was just recounting his story, and Trent thought it was funny. And apparently, it ended up on the editing floor. Thanks, man. <laughs> hey, man, I'm so, trying to protect us here. But uh, now, moving fine. forward, I know we're okay. just going to be an X-rated pod. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not saying that. But, I mean, have you ever been into an NFL locker room, Tommy Freeze? I'm, I'm back. I'm back with you on Freeze Pops, man. <laughs> I'm back. I forgive you. I, have you ever been into a locker room? Trust me, there's a few uh, four-letter words flying around in there. Uh, hey, my mistake. We're going to keep it more authentic here, you know? <laughs> All is forgiven. Let's let's stay authentic. And whatever happens, happens. I think this is what our listeners want anyway. Totally. Before we get to Franco Harris, who's an absolute icon, Tom, we have to talk about a few things in the NFL that has happened. A pretty exciting week. Yeah, so last night on Monday Night Football, the mm. Saints were upset by the Raiders, their first game in Vegas. And the media is freaking out about Drew Brees. They think he's done. We're seeing the decline of one of the all-time greats. Two straight weeks where he didn't have insane numbers. And, you know, you pay attention to the Saints closely. You watch the game. Did Drew Brees look washed up to you? I mean, am I crazy here through two weeks? Is Drew Brees done? I don't think so. No, Drew, Drew Brees takes what the defense gives him. He threw a bad ball, threw a back pick, didn't see the linebacker underneath on, on one of his throws, and it was a costly interception. Having said that, though, he's missing his deep threat, Thomas. I mean, this guy's hurt. So that is really the only viable, in my opinion, deep threat for the Saints is Thomas. And when that goes away, you have to take the shorter stuff. I mean, some of the ride receivers for the Saints are small guys. They're speedsters. And, you know, Kamara had a big game, really great running and catching the ball out of the backfield. And so... 
This is what Breeze does. He reads the defenses and takes what it gives him. So to come out and say that, uh, you know, he's washed up and can't throw the deep ball, that's just ludicrous to me. And I've seen this stat thrown around all day. It's from ESPN Stats and Info. Drew Breeze has averaged 4.82 yards on his passes so far this season. That's his lowest through two games as a member of the Saints, and it's the lowest by any quarterback through two games since Brett Favre in 2009. And okay, that's fine. Your math nerds love that stuff, right? But you have an entire football game without Michael Thomas to be baked into that number. And it's only two games worth of stats to work with. So, of course, that number is going to be low for all the reasons you just said. I just think people need to relax. Drew Brees is one of the all-time great quarterbacks we're two weeks into the season. Let's let the guy play here a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think the storyline for that particular game, the Raiders really hurt the Saints with their tight ends. Waller was just a beast. I mean, it was a huge target. Their safeties couldn't handle him. Big plays, chunk plays, and, and scored you know, really at will. They moved their ball when they had to, especially at the end of the game. So the storyline to me was more about what the Raiders did to the Saints defense and what Drew Brees wasn't able to do because he didn't have Michael Thomas. Waller's a beast. He's low-key one of the best tight ends in the NFL. There's no question. But I wanted to ask you this, Morton. Why is every good player getting hurt? Well, we have seven ACL injuries, and the Niners were decimated by injuries. You know, Boza and D. Ford's hurt, and Mostert. A lot of guys are hurt. A high ankle sprain in Carolina with McCaffrey, and then you have Saquon Barkley in New York. There's a couple of reasons I think you're seeing a ton of injuries, and it's probably, you know, lack of play, no preseason short training camp and a weird off season. In my opinion, though, a lot of ACL injuries happen because of an imbalance in the body. A lot of times when your brake pads with your glutes, your butt, your backside. Can I say the A word, Tommy Corporate? Your ass. Thank you. You Good deal. When your ass, your muscles are weak there, there's an imbalance. And what happens when in football is all about acceleration, deceleration, and change of direction. And so when that happens, running back, whatever position you play, and you have to change direction quickly, you have to heel strike to decel. If your glutes can absorb that heel strike, what happens is you're compromised, your knee goes in, and you have an ACL injury. So that could be one of the reasons, which is why it's so important when you train specifically. I know these guys, I mean, they train specifically for what position they play and so forth. But a lot of time, I think we forget that a simple lunge with a heel strike and engaging the glute, it's a really important exercise. So if you're out there, you know, in your 30s, 40s, make sure you're doing your lunges correctly. Don't get the knee in front of the toe, et cetera, et cetera. All right, Dr. Morton checking in, telling us how to avoid those ACL tears. We have we have Tommy Corporate and Dr. Anderson. This is uh, this is turning out to be a whole different thing, man. Bunch of smart guys doing a podcast together. Yeah, I like it, man. Hey, first time anybody called me smart. <laughs> All right, Tommy Freeze Pops. Let's kick it. When I finally was elected to Football Hall of Fame in 2017 and went to Kent, Ohio for the festivities in early August. One of the guys, maybe the guy that I was most looking forward to meeting was Franco Harris. He is to me a legend, 
somebody who almost to me seemed untouchable when, you know, I came to the United States in 1977. And so this was in the heyday of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Franco was balling. And he was one of the first really U.S. players, NFL players that I found out about, that I got to know about. And when I watched him, it was just like, wow, this this guy's incredible. And then to be able to, 40 years later, to stand in Canton, Ohio on a stage and do my acceptance speech and then look over to the left, you know, and there's Roger Staubach and there's uh, Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith and there's all the legends of the game. And then there's Franco Harris with that big smile. Wow. I was humbled to understand that I belonged to such an elite group. And when I got to meet him, it became even more powerful because he's such a great human being and his smile just permeates through a room when he walks in and everybody turns their head and goes, well, Franco's here. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's get to it. My conversation with Hall of Fame brother, Franco Harris. Thank you so much for joining me, buddy, and uh, my Hall of Fame brother, which I'm so proud of to be part of that exclusive club. How you doing, buddy? Morton, I'm doing great, and uh, nice to be talking with you, and, and hope everything during these challenging times are fine mm. with you on your end. I really missed my time in Canton with all the guys here in the beginning of August. Oh, man. And I know you did, too, for our listeners every year. The Hall of Fame obviously inducts a, a new class, and this year was unique, or was going to be unique. It was the 100th anniversary, of course, of the NFL. You had three Steelers out of the 20 going in. Yes, know, so, so I know that, that was meaningful for you guys, and you have a yeah. big group of guys already in there and more joining you. So let's talk a little bit about Pittsburgh and what that city has meant to you. I mean, you get drafted back in the 70s, and... You must have been ecstatic. I mean, a Penn State product coming out, and here you are with the Steelers. I mean, this is a team of Pennsylvania. You must have been absolutely above the moon. Hey, I'm going to be a Pittsburgh Steeler, Franco. Well, you know what, uh, Morton, and I do want to say that just about everybody else in the world shares your feeling about that because people recognize and appreciate the Steelers now for the greatness of the team, all the great players, you know, the champions, you know, the Super Bowls. But people forget, which I guess is a good thing in some ways, but you have to remember your history, that from 1933, when the Steelers were founded, until 1971, they were the worst team in NFL history. They had more losses than any team in the history of football. They had the fewest points scored in the history of football, most points scored against. They were the bottom of the barrel. When people were telling me I was going to be drafted, I said, well, like, there's two teams I don't want to get drafted by, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay Packers really for being in that real cold weather. I didn't want to go there. You know, I would think of more like Miami, yeah. California. L.A. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, you, right. You know what I mean? You know, that's what's in my mind. Yeah, well, if I could be drafted by one of those teams. 
you know, I'm four years at Penn State. It's like, okay, I want to go out and see the world now. You know, I want to leave Pennsylvania, not stay in Pennsylvania. I want to go out. And when I got that phone call, congratulations, you're best buddy Pittsburgh Steelers. I was, oh, no, no way. Could not believe it. But if you think about it, Morton, I could not have gone to a better place at a better time. You're not kidding. And no one saw that coming. And, you know, 1972 was my rookie year. And we went all the way to the championship game where we lost to the 17 and 0 Miami Dolphins. But 1972 started this run. Oh, it was, was a huge year for you, Franco. Huge year for you. And you had oh. been a blocking back at Penn State, really, more than the featured back. You were blocking for Lydell Mitchell. That was a transition. You had to go, wow, now I'm the featured back with the Steelers, but I really spent more of my time paving the way for somebody else. There had to be a shift for you there. You must have been hungry to carry the rock, number one. And number two, you had to kind of put on a different hat, didn't you? Well, you know, uh, growing up, college was not part of the plan. I never thought about college once. My dad was a career man in the military. My mom, being from Italy, and my yeah. dad being from Mississippi, that, uh, you know, like my dad wasn't highly educated, and my mom in Italy only, only went up to the sixth grade. They meet uh, when your dad, he was a war veteran, World War II, and they meet and fall in love. Uh, your dad, African-American, your mother, Italian, Caucasian, and then you, many years later, become the first first African-American in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and first Italian, you know, that combo of being Italian heritage, which has carried through. And I want to talk about that a little bit, too. Because I think it's a really interesting. I mean, you grew up in Fort Dix. You're from New Jersey. Right. Like, I was born on Fort Dix, the Army base. And, like, as I said, my dad spent 22 years in the military. But yeah. I grew up in a town called Mount Holly outside of Philadelphia. And it was close to Fort Dix. Growing up as a kid, worked in Fort Dix, you know, packing grocery bags at the commissary, shining shoes all the way through high school. We had nine kids. And, huh. and, like, the military, the pay was pretty dismal back then. So making uh, ends meet with 11 people in the household on the military pay was quite was tough. Was football part of your experience back that early, or did that come a little bit later? Well, luckily, you know, we were pretty athletic. But my dad was, you know, being in the military, working on base and doing a lot of different things every day and he's gone and so my mother knew nothing about sports but we had a very active neighborhood which was great and like our neighborhood was pretty active because even though it was a project area there were a lot of military guys on our street and what was interesting was that it was a lot of army guys and air force guys because the air force base and army base were right next to each other and so mm -hmm. it was interesting a lot of the Army guys, whether they were African-American or Caucasian, a lot of them married European girls during World War II, whether they were from Italy, Germany, France, uh, even Denmark. England. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not sure if there's any Denmark there, but, yeah. but you know, probably, right, you know. And <laughs> the Air Force personnel, they were married to Japanese, Filipinos, South yeah. American. So we had, you know, 
this like worldwide mixture, yeah. which was pretty crazy, say, you know, growing up in the 50s and early 60s with this sort of neighborhood. But it was like a neighborhood of the world, right? Don't you think that that has shaped you? I mean, that experience, that young and seeing different cultures and different races across the lines, if you will, uh, at an early age, that made you the person you are, a tolerant humanitarian who I see you as somebody who's very good at uh, bringing people together, Franco. You know, I see you as a humanitarian, as a kind human being who understands a bigger picture. And I think maybe that came from way back then. No doubt, you know, that, it like it started back then because as i said you know we saw people of all colors and nationalities right and it was all blended playing together you, you know kids you might fight for one minute then you're playing for the next few hours you know what i mean had a lot of great friendship from there and i do want to say that luckily in our hometown we had a great school system i remember when I was in the first grade, now I have to say this, I never read a book, never saw a book before I went into kindergarten. You know, my mother sort of went up to sixth grade and, you know, and during that time, she could read some English. Well, you know, her first language was Italian, but she learned English. And, and so we never saw a book before, never read anything, nothing. I got into first grade and I had a teacher, Miss Matola. And mm-hmm. when you got something wrong, she would pinch your butt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. You know, she'd bring you up, you know, she'd bring you up, you know, where you would stand next to her and you go through your lessons and she would pinch my butt off. And this is wrong. And this is wrong. And I'd, you know, I'd be jumping. I'm not sure that's going to fly butt. today, Franco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yeah. Like I said, man, if I saw Miss Matola now, hmm. You know. <laughs> But but what's interesting is, like I said, we had a good school system. So so sure, you struggle in the beginning. But I tell people that by the sixth grade in Mr. Majada's class, I got straight A's. So it took me, you know, from first grade to sixth grade, though, right? The good school system made the difference. And, like, because of that, from first grade, not knowing a word, so sixth grade, you know, getting straight A's. But then my dad encouraged us. He said, if you get straight A's, you know, you get to get, you know, anything you want. You know, sixth grade, I got a bike. I got other things. Said, you know, I got straight A's all the way through that. And so it really taught you about having an incentive, right, going for a goal. And at the same time, I joined the, uh, we call it the CYO League in, in our hometown, which is baseball, right? So I started playing baseball when I was eight years old and played all the way till I was 13. And I guess got to see that I was a pretty good athlete. We never played football in our neighborhood at all, strictly baseball. And loved the game of baseball. So why really the switch was- to football? Why and how did that actually happen? I mean, the undeniable that you were an athlete and so somebody must have said hey you're now a running back or we're going to use you in football well after baseball basketball was my love you know started playing basketball in the neighborhood football just wasn't around then in seventh grade they had football teams so you know played on it there's only like three or four games like it was no big deal right but because it was a sport I played, like my mother didn't like us playing football. 
she was used to another type of football over in Italy. You know? Yeah, soccer. And, <laughs> which yeah, you know I'm, about. I'm familiar. I'm familiar. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, so American football, my mom didn't like that at all. You could have been a soccer player, Franco. You could have been a, a, a stud for Milan, man, or, or Juventus or something, and your mother would have worshipped you. Oh, my God. Tell me about your Penn State experience. I mean, you had a high school career, was great, right? And so did you have many options for college, or was Penn State where you wanted to go, and why? My junior year, I made high school All-American. My sophomore year, I had an older brother, Mario, and... Mario got a football scholarship to a little college in New Jersey called Glassboro at the time. It's called Rowan now. We were in total shock. Someone in our family is going to go to college. It was like, what? We can go to college by playing football? We never heard of a scholarship before. Now, my brother Mario always wanted to be a Marine, and he got this scholarship, but he still went up to sign up for the Marines, but he got turned down for a heart murmur. So he went to college, and, and now it's like, we can go to college? And so the yeah. following year, I made high school All-American. And then I started getting all these letters and, uh, you know, visiting places. My first visit was Ohio State, and I couldn't believe how they treated you, right? Because, you know, like growing up, I never had state. You know, we never had anything fancy or anything like that. And the meals they were feeding you, I was like, Oh, my God. I visited nine schools, Morton. Can you believe <laughs> You were going to make sure you got a good, a couple good meals in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, they come <laughs> one and dine you, you know, in my hometown. And, and I said, I like this. <laughs> I did a couple wow. of visits. I did Purdue and Michigan State. And there was a Danish kicker at Michigan State. And that was the end for me. I said, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Kind of like your brother, Bingo. you know. Your brother could go to college, so could Franco, right? Right. And, you know, went to Ohio State, you know, went to Maryland, Pitt, Michigan, to Notre Dame, and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. like it kind of came down to three, Penn State, Michigan, and Cornell. And, more, you know, like, as you know, the way to the son a lot of time is through the mother, right? No truer words have been spoken about mm -hmm. college recruiting. Yes. And, and you can appreciate this. If the schools had an Italian coach on their staff, that's who they said. <laughs> Let me think. Joe pa, Paterno, this looks pretty good for mom. <laughs> that, that's who oh, they sent to the house. Right? That is classic. They, and, they're bringing and, the closer, the heavy. <laughs> And, and, like, the coach from Michigan was trying to tell my mom, no, Joe is Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> That's dirty business, Franco. That's dirty. <laughs> you know, oh. and, 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 like, the coach at Cornell, like, when I, you know, when I went there, they brought me to his house, and his yeah. wife cooked this incredible Italian dinner. <laughs> and... and and and, and 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 like it was great, but uh, all kinds of tricks you know, going on, man. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, and but you know all the schools I visited were great schools, right? You know, great schools. Sure. Yeah. And it was a tough choice, but in the end, my gut told me. Uh, and your mom. 
Yeah, and the Mr. Paterno, he uh, bringing me the biggest box of chocolate I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) But but what's interesting with this also, as I mentioned about never thinking about going to college, do you know we never talked about going into the pros? It was nothing we talked about, which is interesting, right, when you think about it. Because today yeah. that's all they talk about, but I never thought about being drafted. Well, the whole and thing's different, too, much- Franco, because back then they didn't have what they have now. It was not a big production. You got a phone call, right? I mean, when you got drafted, you're like, oh, no, Pittsburgh Steelers. But it wasn't like they came and scouted you and checked you out like they do now. They they weigh you. I mean, it's it, you know, every which way they check you out. But back then there was nothing. Nothing like that. You know that uh- – no one came in and ran me on anything, never talked to me, never had one phone call. And like I guess people were saying that, Frank, are you going to be drafted? I'm saying to myself, okay. So I tell people, no, I had a good career at Penn State, and, and, and Lydell deserved it all. He had an unbelievable senior year, you know, set records for touchdowns and, and you know, had a phenomenal year. And, and like I didn't make All-American, I never made All-American or anything like that. So I had no clue. So I was completely in shock when I was the first running back chosen that year. I had no clue. And then the Pittsburgh Steelers on top of that, I'm like, you know, it's not where, you know, want to go, but once you're drafted, it's like, you know, yeah. hey, listen, I'm happy for it. And uh, But what's interesting is that after I was drafted, and I knew now I was going into a profession, changed my whole attitude. I said, Franco, you're going into the pros, you're going to the next level, you're going to have to get ready for it, and what are the things that you're going to have to do? Now, at Penn State during those years, I wasn't real big and heavy into weightlifting. I probably worked out the way I should have, but I told myself I'd take it to the next level. Now, this is in the 1971-72, right? So after the season, like, I went down to the, you know, to the campus weight room, and I walked in, and I had no clue what I wanted to do. And back then, it seemed like all the people in the weight room at that time were bodybuilders. And they looked at me and said, Franco, do you need some help? I said, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of <laughs> took me under their wings and showed me how okay. to lift. I had a buddy of mine that was on a you know Penn State team who knew about track work, so okay. he told me you know that you know how to do track work. I mean, yes. I worked out every day, and, and like if I would have missed a day of workout, I felt like I sinned. I mean, it was so consuming, and 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 I approached it. I said, Franco, get in shape to win in the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter. You have to, other people are tired. You have to make sure you can still go on. So, you know, everything was geared for that. And then because of that, I got mentally strong, where my mentality was just accomplished things. You know, we want to win. But I knew nothing about how bad the Steelers were during that time. I I knew nothing about their past history, that they were the worst in NFL history. But why do you think the change in the 70s, when you got there, like you said, they had been the worst franchise for 30-plus years, 
What was the thing, the catalyst in your mind, besides great players, and there's lots of them in the 70s, what was it that shifted the power? Because the greatest teams at the time, Miami, Oakland, Minnesota, Cowboys, and then here come the Steelers now. And nobody could have seen four Super Bowls and an appearance in two other AFC championship games where you could have had, you could have had six had you not run into Miami in their undefeated season in Oakland. But think about it. You could have had six Super Bowls in a decade. I mean, it's unheard of. Was it a combination? Or do you feel like it was one thing that shot it to the top? You know what I mean? We could see the talent starting to emerge, especially on our defense. Our defense started to click. And, man, were they fun to watch. And so the steel curtain really started to come together. You know, having a running game, taking, you know, pressure off of Bradshaw at his early career, I think, really helped. You know, where we really were, were like our running game really was the, you know, foundation in those early years where you control the ball, right? You know, you keep the other team off the field and defense. And so we were able to do that, and it was like a new mindset. And then once we started winning, wow. Contagious, right? You hit it right on the head. And, and like, I was wondering why Steelers fans were going nuts. And then that's when I started hearing about the history. They never won anything. That's when you started now, realizing. Yeah, and now they're going crazy. You had the yeah, Franco Harris yeah, Italian yeah. Army. I mean, it was the greatest. So talk about that a little bit, Franco. You know, that was so great. Frank Sinatra was part of that. Did you ever meet Frank, the crooner? Yes, let me tell you about that. So, you know, two Italian guys approached me. Well, well, through my lawyer, then I met with them, you know. And, you know, as Italian guys, one was a baker. And one was a pizza maker, right? And and, and they said, frankly, you know, we had a, a, a dinner, and he's a group of Italians, and you know, it's always over, it's always over food, right? Food and wine, and uh, yeah, perfect. And like they're saying, you know, we're discussing, man, we're winning, but how do we get Steelers fans going? You know, how do we even get them going more? What do we have to do? And then one person threw out, ah, oh, get Steelers fans going. It would take an army, you know, to really get them going. And then the guy said, hey, there's this Paris kid. He's half Italian. Why don't we push him about Franco's Italian army? We'll, you know, we'll put this army together to to help lead the charge and, you know, you know, with our fans. So they pushed me on. I said, yeah, you know, that sounds great. Hey, tell me if this is true, that the baker hollowed out bread and put a bottle of wine in there to smuggle it into the games. Is that true? That is true. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yes, he would hollow out his, his uh, loaf, his Italian bread loaf, and uh, put a wine bottle in there. Oh, and, that's uh, great. and so, as you know, my rookie year, we had an incredible season. Yeah. We had to go to San Diego, and we had to win the last game to win our division. Right. And the weather in Pittsburgh was supposed to be terrible. So the Rooneys decided this is big for Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. Only one other time in history. Since 1933, were they ever in a playoff game? Wow. From 1933 to 1971, they were in one playoff game, and they lost that one. And now we have all the hysteria hysteria going, right? If we won 
beat San Diego, we have home field advantage the whole way. And, and so they took us to Palm Springs. And this renowned radio announcer named Myron Cope. Myron wow. is the founder of the Terrible Town. And he sees Frank Sinatra in a restaurant one night there, you know, that week of practice there in Palm Springs. Yeah. And he approaches Frank and says, Frank, you know, there's this kid, Frank O'Harris, who's here. And, uh, you know, we'd like to, you know, get you inducted into the Italian Army. And Frank Sinatra said, I'll be there. And uh, so Myron calls Tony Sagno and Al Vento. And these guys were nervous of flying, right? They weren't flying very much. And but they said, yeah. you know what? We're going to come. Frank Sinatra is like God to us. You know what I mean? And uh, they flew out. And Frank had a place in Palm Springs. He lived there. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, like a lot of actors back then had. Uh, yeah. That was the place where a lot of Hollywood people had places yeah. in uh, Palm Springs back then. Yeah. And uh, practice is going on. This is a practice and, and no Frank Sinatra, right? And everybody's, you know, uh -huh. busting on Myron. Uh, <laughs> we know we're going to come. And all of a sudden, Frank Sinatra appears on the you know, back of the crowd and said, hey, when Frank Sinatra said he's going to come, he comes. And uh, Chuck Knoll stopped practice. You can believe that. He stopped practice to do a wine ceremony to induct really? Frank Sinatra into Frank's into Italian that. Army. Okay, now now we only made him a one-star general. That's all. So. Tell me. So tell me about the wine <laughs> ceremony. What was that? I, I, I'm trying to picture you guys in Palm Springs two-a-days, or not two-a-days, but practice, and Chuck Knoll, and here's Frank Sinatra. Myron Cope's right. probably there, right? And your buddies from the Franco's Italian Army with red wine? What's going yep. on? I mean, what, what was the ceremony? This is, this is so <laughs> surreal. I can't even wrap my head around this. This is beautiful. Right. So stop practice, and we do the wine ceremony. And induct You're drinking wine at practice. Yep. And 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 and, and uh, we went on to beat San Diego, and then came back to play Oakland in the first playoff series, and we all know what happened there, right? You were in the right place at the right time, Franco, and uh, right. made the best. Oh, of it. And, and, you know? and like and like, I want to say that saying in my head that made it happen was from Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno mm -hmm. always yelled at us, "Go to the ball, go to the ball." Yeah. He said, always go to the ball, go to the ball. But you never know what might happen. You know, someone might fumble, someone might need this, need that. Go to the ball. He would yell, go to the ball, go to the ball. And Because yeah, that, that ball wasn't meant for you. That ball was meant for one of your teammates. And was and it comes off of Tatum and, uh, you know, lots of controversy. Did it hit the ground? Did it not hit the ground? I've, I've seen that play. That didn't hit the ground. But it, <laughs> I'm, thank God there was no replay, right? Could you, my what would they have called if there my, was replay? What would they have more, called? My lips are sealed. My lips are sealed. I'm not <laughs> saying anything. But, uh, yeah. but it's in the record book. And, and like I just want to say, uh, taking those few steps to go towards the ball, yeah. You know, not knowing anything was going to happen, taking those few steps towards the ball or even having that attitude, you know, to look that way and go towards that way, you know, made all the difference of that, you know, Joe's words in my head, go to the ball. 
And I know that your your exit and the brief stint you had in Seattle was not the way you had envisioned uh, leaving Pittsburgh and leaving the game. But in retrospect, and I just want your final words on this, being able to come back and reconcile with the Rooney family and being such an iconic figure in the Pittsburgh sports scene and still being so present there, not only with the team, but in the city. It must feel good for you to now go to a Steelers game and and feel the love and talk to the fans and and appreciate your history and your legacy, which is so well-deserved, Franco. Well, you know, I tell people that, you know, I can't let one bad year ruin 12 great years. Why would I do that? So, you know, I went to Seattle, but just mentally, I uh, wasn't ready for that transition. And, yeah. and sometimes I tell myself, unfortunately, because they were really good to me. You know, any people in Seattle, you know, they were great guys. The organization was nice to me. But yeah. you know how tough the game is and not to be mentally ready. You know, we know yeah. that uh, takes a lot out of it. And uh, But you know what? I tell people that when I look at where I'm at now, I wouldn't change anything and you're you're part of a dynasty you know yeah and and you know what we had you know what we accomplished during that time we in a way set a new standard both on the field and like also i want to say with our fans i mean Steelers nation has become one of the greatest nations that there is the Roonies have a certain way of doing their business and i they also it seems to me when I look at the head coaches that have been with Pittsburgh, there's not a lot of change there. There's there's consistency for a long time. You got Chuck Knoll, then you have you know Coward, Bill Cowell for Coward. many years, and then you have Tomlin. Since nineteen sixty nine, since nineteen sixty nine, fifty years we're still on our third coach. Come on. It's amazing. This absolutely How incredible amazing. is that. That's incredible. That speaks volumes to, you know, the consistency and to doing due diligence. It was the same with the players uh, through the draft. I mean, the Steelers, to me, historically has, for a long time, has, has really drafted well. I mean, they do their homework. And once you're with the Steelers, you're going to be there for a long time. Sometimes my feeling is they should delve into the free agent draft a little bit more. And I know sometimes it's hard to make that change, but sometimes I think that this day and age that you, you know, you have to consider that more and more because you're right. We've always been proud to do it through the draft yeah. and still you want that to be your main catalyst, you know, but it's tougher to do now. Just as you said, a, a lot of organizations have become sharper in, yeah. in their studying of players and doing things. One thing that makes us really feel good that the greatness has continued and, and that it, you know, lives on and still a nation yes. keeps getting bigger and bigger. And it will continue, and it started for real, you know, in 1972 when when you were drafted 13th overall in the uh, 72 draft by the Pittsburgh Steelers. You uh, were an integral part of those teams, along with a lot of other great players that we have covered. It's been great, Franco, to spend some time with you. An honor to uh, be able to talk to my my Hall of Fame brother and uh, a true, true true NFL legend, and so proud to call you a friend, and uh, just thanks for joining me today, buddy. My pleasure, brother. You take care of yourself. You be well, and look forward to seeing you soon. I'll tell you, Tommy, uh, Franco is the best, isn't he? 
That was fantastic. And could you imagine any tribute to the 1970s Steelers without Franco Harris? I cannot. Uh, iconic. And there's so many iconic players, but to me, Franco Harris still, because of the most significant, well-known play in the history of the NFL, Franco Harris stands alone. And he's so entrenched in that community of Pittsburgh. He's done so many things off the field, the charity work he does. You know, he's got a really cool thing, uh, Super Donuts. It's a healthy donut. I don't know. Do you like donuts? Love donuts. Me too. But imagine eating a donut and it tastes like a donut, but it actually has like good protein in it. Come on. That's a win-win. It's a donut that's good for you? That's what I'm saying. That's what Franco figured out. So he's got superdonuts.com up there. You know, that's just one of the things that he's involved with. And he gives so much back to the community. He kind of adheres to what I believe in is that you give more than you take. And when I think about that saying, I think of Franco Harris. He's just a great guy and he's a fantastic ambassador for the game. Mm, absolutely. It was just great conversation. And obviously I'll have more on Franco and my game winner segment at the end of the podcast. But before we get to that, let's check in with Paul Bovey from Vegas Insider. VegasInsider.com is the global leader for sports gambling information, and it's your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. Every week, we're going to be joined by one of our Vegas Insider experts to make us a little smarter. And this week, we're joined by Vegas Insider expert Paul Bovey. Paul, welcome to Great Day Nation. Hey, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And make sure you check out the latest from Paul on VegasInsider.com. Hear him as a guest on our podcasts. He's got picks. He's a true renaissance man when it comes to this stuff. And you got to follow him on Twitter at Paul Bovi. That's Bovi, B-O-V-I. And Paul, since Morton was joined by Franco Harris this week, I wanted to chat with you briefly about Big Ben and the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're sitting at 2-0 after going 8-8 last season. The 38-year-old quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, looks great after missing 14 games last year due to injury. He's got five touchdowns and one pick on the year. He's completing almost 70% of his balls. How sustainable do we think this is, and are the Steelers a real threat in the seemingly loaded AFC? Well, first of all, I hear a lot of uh, people gushing over the Steeler defense, and so far, I'm not thoroughly impressed. Now, last week, uh, they faced the Broncos, Cortland Sutton. He played in game two, uh, second game for the Broncos, and he caught last week three passes, went out with an injury. So they really didn't have to face much of a passing offense with the Broncos and Tim Patrick, Judy, uh, Hamler, and Noah Fant at the tight end. And then the week before, look, Danny Dimes had some success through the air against them. No question. It was just a late turnover in the third quarter that really flipped the script of the game around. So I'm not really sold on that defense, which a lot of people are considering a vaunted one at that. And as far as offensively, look, he threw for 220 yards the first game. The numbers looked a lot better last week. And uh, they've got two solid running backs in Snell and Connor. Each one had a, a, an outstanding week. And then Connor didn't show up, one of the two. I'm going to say the jury's out right now. I, I think the Steelers are a tad overrated off that 2-0 record. I, I just don't see uh, convincing performances in either case. So I'm going to take a step back. And apparently there are those that agree with me because the number opened up this week 
Steelers six, six and a half over the Texans, and it's down to three and a half and four. So the money is coming in on Houston. And one more thing on Big Ben before we move on here. He's only played a full season, 16 games, four times in his 17-year career with the Steelers. So you can almost bank on him missing at least a game or two every year. So that's going to affect that win total too. So I, like you, am hesitant to buy in on the Steelers just yet. So let's get into some quick picks here. We're going to start with Kansas City at Baltimore on Monday Night Football. It's a matchup of the last two league MVPs. Ravens opened up as two and a half point favorites. That's now up to three and a half. And with the game being all the way on Monday night, it should be noted that there's still plenty of time for this line to move even more. Is this just a matter of the Ravens being the home team here? I think it's a matter of people having watched the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday. They didn't win that football game. The Chargers lost it. There was one point that Justin Herbert tried to force the ball downfield, and he could have easily picked up the first down instead through what I consider a game-changing INT. And the play calling by Anthony Lynn uh, or the offensive coordinator, I I think it was poor. They were stacking the box. They were running into the line. Uh, They had to come up with something at that point, which they did not. And the Chargers just gave the game away. The Chiefs allowed 4.2 yards per rush, 183 yards. And there were no breakaway runs in there. And Herbert went 22-33 for 300-plus. They did not look impressive defensively. And and cornerback Ward is questionable. You've got already a rookie at cornerback in Sneed. And that's going to be part of the problem here. I, I, I do think the Ravens right now, if you were to assess both teams, the Ravens are the better football team. Would I lay more than a field goal knowing that you could get a garbage touchdown with arguably the best quarterback in the game? No, I wouldn't. If I were to take this game right now, I would probably take the money line. And, and the money line to me has become too prohibitive it's probably sitting 175, 180, and I'm not prepared to uh, to lay that. But I think a, a solid play on this game would be the Ravens team total over. If you can get it at 30, which I already did for small money, I think that's a pretty good play. All right, let's move to the Sunday night football matchup between Green Bay and New Orleans. The Packers are in New Orleans. This line has jumped dramatically. It opened with the Saints as six and a half point favorites. They're now just a field goal favorite at home. Are people that worried about the supposed demise of Drew Brees? Well, I'll tell you what. Drew Brees is a precision passer. 80% completions, razor short of it last year. Uh, He does not throw the ball downfield, and without Michael Thomas, their passing uh, game is going to be woefully inadequate going forward until he gets his star receiver back, who I feel is the best in the game. So uh, you have on the other side Aaron Rodgers. Lights out performances the first two weeks, and I was on the Packers against the Vikings. And the reason I was is because the Vikings – had completely gutted their entire secondary in favor of draft picks taken in the first, third, fifth, and seventh rounds. Okay, so he took advantage of it. Credit to him. Devonta Adams had eight catches in the first half. But then last week, they go against the Detroit team, who once again, soft secondary. They lose Slay and Melvin in free agency. The run defense is poor. Aaron Jones goes off. I think Green Bay is going to come back down to earth this week. We were talking about this team 
having an anemic offense a few weeks ago. They barely cracked 20 the last four weeks of the regular season. And now all of a sudden there's a second coming of the fun bunch. I I don't agree with that. I think this is going to be a lower scoring game. I'm going to give away one of my picks here. I'm already stepped on it at 52. And I think uh, fair value on this game is probably around 49 with these two teams. And if Devonta Adams is out and he's questionable now with a hamstring problem, you know, you've got on the New Orleans side, definitely an underperforming offense and a Green Bay offense that's all of a sudden going to have to take on a top five run defense and cornerbacks who, while they are physical and have, and have drawn some penalties, are talented. Last game I want to run by you is the Cowboys in Seattle. Seattle coming off their thrilling Sunday night win over the Pats. Cowboys coming off their crazy win against Atlanta. Seahawks opened up as three and a half point favorites. That number is now up to five. Paul, what's your read here? My read here is that you have two teams which are in trouble defensively. Now, the Cowboys looked Terrible against the Rams in week one. I don't know how the Rams only scored 20 points uh, because realistically, based on uh, my eyes, and I trust my eyes over the final score, they should have scored a lot more. And then we saw what Atlanta did last week. I can't explain the collapse, but then again, I'm not going to try to here other than to say that the Cowboy defense was not good. Now they lost a woozy, their cornerback, and they had already lost Byron Jones in free agency, who signed with the Dolphins and is now injured. And then Demarcus Lawrence is questionable this week. And then you already have Van Der Esch and Sean Lee on the IR. Team's going to be in trouble defensively. But then again, on the other side, Seattle lost Bruce Irvin to the IR, and, and he's going to be out a few weeks. And they also lost their safety. Now, Seattle gave up 179 yards of receiving to Julian Edelman. And then in the prior week, they gave up 100 yards plus to Ridley, Gage, and Julio. So that pass defense does not look very good right now. And the under and over reflects it at 56. So that's my take. Two weak defenses, two relatively decent offenses, although Dallas's offense, I think, has underperformed. I think they got very lucky on Sunday, and uh, it was a little bit of a misleading final. Paul, thank you so much for joining us this week. And before I let you go, tell everyone what you're working on and where they can find it. I play my own games. Uh, Anything I give out, I bet, and I bet it before I give it out. And you can find my picks at VegasInsider.com. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in it to win it. We love that. And remember to check out VegasInsider.com slash GDN for your free weekly pick for the NFL weekend. That's VegasInsider.com slash GDN. Paul, thanks. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Tom. And now, Morton Anderson's Game Winner. I wonder what it feels like to be a part of the most memorable play in the history of the NFL. When you relive it in your mind years later, is it still fresh and full of colorful details? Or does the memory become clouded by countless attempts by onlookers to spin the play as they experienced it? For Franco Harris and his immaculate reception, the memory is vivid, powerful, and personal. He speaks of it with reverence and appreciation, but also acknowledges 
that without hustle and awareness, the play doesn't happen. He's as grateful for that experience as he is for all that he received through his rich life. Franco Harris comes from a diverse background and how his history has shaped him is a lesson for all of us. I learned from him that tolerance and acceptance of others, despite color, religion, or other beliefs, must start with kindness and love. His humanity shines through his incredible smile, and I hope that you have a chance to meet Franco Harris and feel that smile and receive his warmth. If I wanted to be a fan of a team in a specific time, my team would have been the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 70s. I would have signed up to be a member of Franco Harris's Italian army, and I would have found those founding members, the baker and the pizza maker, and bought an Italian loaf of bread, hollowed it out, and put a nice bottle of Italian red inside it. With my heart pounding in my chest in anticipation, I would have made my way to Three Rivers Stadium alongside thousands of fans, many wearing army helmets with number 32 on the side. We would all sit together and soon stand because the object of our affection was right there in front of us, making magic, running the ball and creating memories. And when he scored, Franco Harris would look up to his army, wave and flash a smile that could be seen all the way to Fort Dix, New Jersey. We'll see you next time. Great Dane Nation is presented by VegasInsider.com, the global leader for sports gaming information and your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. A big thanks to Franco Harris for joining us this week, and thanks to Paul Bovey and the team at Vegas Insider. Remember to visit VegasInsider.com GDN for your free weekly pick for the NFL weekend. Great Dane Nation is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review today.